There is a story about the Buddha walking in a forest with a group of his disciples. He bent down and he scooped up a handful of leaves and he asked those who were with him, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forests? And they replied, of course, they were probably all almost perfectly enlightened. (laughs) They replied, the leaves in all the forests, of course. And the Buddha also replied back to them, the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in the forest. But what I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for freedom, for liberation. So tonight I'd like to speak to you about or offer to you a long-range overview of the practice we are all participating in together. Like the leaves in the Buddha's hand, I'd like to explain it to you in something that is not so extensive that we can understand in a practical way. Yet, it can be simply understood, yet profoundly also liberating and experienced. So my first and continuing teacher in the Dhamma, until he died, of course, he was my teacher and still the teachings um, I remember from him, from Anagarika Munindra of India. And he put these leaves in the Buddha's hand kind of understanding in a very simple framework that he called the three pillars of the Dharma. And they are three areas of our spiritual life that we can bring careful attention to, a very kind of carefulness and sensitivity that we're bringing to now in our practice to what we're doing here today. So this will support the long-range aspiration of complete liberation that the Buddha mentioned is all we need. This is all we need for complete liberation. These very kind of areas, three areas of life. So we're doing a very important thing here, which many of you, if not all of you, have come to many times during your life, and this kind of intensive practice. But this long-range view that uh, the Buddha talked about and that Manindra put into this understanding of the three pillars of the Dharma uh, is not about, it's not all about intensive practice. So I thought that I would give you an understanding of the complete uh, full view. So these three pillars are The first one is called dana, or giving. It's a mindful practice, also, of the action of giving from an inner attitude of uh, a clear intention of generosity from the heart. So it's not merely feeling generous, but actually dana is acting on that generosity. It's carrying out it out in the world and making it really karmically powerful. When we think about being generous, 
that's a powerful act of karma. But when we actually act on it, it makes it more powerful. So that's the first pillar. And the second one is called sila, S-I-L-A, sila. And that is a practice of living in harmony. When we take the precepts, we took them at the very beginning. And the other night, we took them here in the hall. For those of you who were here, we took the five precepts. And those have to do with living in harmony with others and living in harmony with our own highest values of non-harming, not harming through our speech, not harming through our behavior, through our actions. So this brings a deep inner harmony, not only to those we deal with, we, we live with in our lives, near and far, but also a deep inner harmony. Very, very important. The third pillar is called bhavana, and I'll spell it B-H-A-V as in victory, A-N-A, bhavana. It means uh, literally bringing forth or cultivating, developing. And this is what we're doing in our meditation practice here. We're cultivating this bhavana. And it comes in two parts in this uh, three pillars. Bhavana comes in the first part. It's the development of concentration. So I'll expand that more as I go through all of these individually. So concentration is a practice or samatha. Developing samadhi is what we're doing here in this practice. Calming, tranquilizing the mind, um, kind of uh, developing an inner stillness so that the mind uh, can subdue and have the defilements or the hindrances very much at bay. The second part of bhavana is the development of wisdom, the development of actually realizing, experiencing uh, very clearly the uh, ultimately the uh, three universal truths of life, impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of reality, and also the not-self nature of reality. So it's important to understand how all these trainings actually um, sustain one another, uh, help us to understand deeply so that we live in alignment with how things are rather than pushing against how things are. We kind of live with more acceptance, but we also have the skill set to be able to navigate the terrain of difficult times without pushing them away or burying them away, and also with beautiful times so that we're not attaching to them. So these trainings are um, intended to help us live our lives fully so that we're not just um, kind of going deeply into our training of meditation, but we're understanding how to bring it out into the world in our speech and our behavior. So... 
today we've all been hearing um, from different ones of you experiences of deep, open-hearted connections with oneself in different ways. Maybe they're not blissful, but they're open-hearted in the ways that we, we understand how our own mind and heart works. And we have moments, not doesn't last long all the time, but we have moments of the absence of greed, hatred, delusion, where there's some clarity, even if the clarity is to see things as they are, and it's difficult to see that, there's clarity there, and there's a, a lessening of the reactivity to seeing clearly as things are. And what that brings to each one of us is this deep sense of connecting with ourselves in ways that we may not have connected before, even when parts of ourselves are not easy to bear, but we can see them with, in a way that says, okay, this is part of my life and I can open to this. The practice of concentration, what we're doing here, really helps this sense of a relative sense of well-being while we're opening to the everythingness of life. So this, what we're doing here, is hugely important to our lives, that we can touch into a deep of peace and well-being, even momentarily, once in a while. Here, maybe for longer moments than in life, but We're learning and training how to bring that into life. So I just wanted to give that some extra special attention about uh, training and this concentration that we're doing here. These simple yet profound practices of giving, of living in harmony, and of developing this deep sense of connecting with ourselves through concentration and also um, eventually through the Vipassana practice, which will get into more and in the days in the future days it helps us to have a sense of well-being that's kind of beyond joy you know kind of beyond that smiley face that we always we want to have all the time but <laughs> at least it can come more than usual when we do these practices but it enables us to be with life in a way that isn't pushing away things as they are, but really accepting the way things are. And learning how to do that with grace, with wisdom, and with more spaciousness, more equanimity and balance of mind. So all these practices, you know, living with them, being a more giving person, living with uh, being a, a person that knows how to live in harmony with oneself and with others, and developing concentration and wisdom, this gives us a place of being in the world with greater ease. When I first started practicing, like all of you in your own ways, I was searching for some peace in in my day-to-day life, and maybe even some moments of calm and bliss and uh, something reliably Uh, accessible to me. Um, I had heard about that there were deeper understandings of what what life is all about, and I really wanted them in in a good wanting way. There is such a thing as, you know, beneficial wanting, wanting liberation, 
wanting clarity of mind, wanting um, harmony within us and around us. So I was in my mid-twenties, and I was a single parent of three active children. So, um, of course, you know, that's why I wanted all those things. (laughs) Um, It naturally came up. So I met Manindraji, to make a long story short, and um, I went to my first long retreat in my mid-70s, in the mid-70s. And he asked me what brought me to the Dhamma, and it was easy for me to say it was suffering. It was pain in my life. And it was clear to me that I had aspirations for a deeper calm, for a clarity where I could see my way through life, not just for myself, but I had, I had little children to take care of and care for. So, of course, I wanted also to be a better mother and a better human being and all those things that you know about also in in your life, trying to be a better human being. So what Manindra did when I told him those things is he made it clear to me that those were beautiful aspirations, of course. But that was not the ultimate aim of the path of practice that the Buddha taught us about, that the Buddha lived for and taught. It wasn't simply for calm, not simply for being a good person, but to go beyond that and to understand how the path, how we could navigate the path to get beyond this conditioned existence. And it it sounds so far-reaching and um, impossible to reach, but the Buddha a human being like all of us taught us that it is possible. And it, it's understandable. It can be understandable from an experiential view, not just from an intellectual viewpoint, not just from a cognitive viewpoint. So the Buddha's ultimate aim for us was to fulfill our potential as human beings. Sometimes that potential was far beyond we could even think of. But it was to go into that unconditional happiness and peace that was beyond, that is beyond all conditions of this world. He called that the unshakable deliverance of mind. And we know mind to be also mind and heart, same thing. So it's beyond what can be known cognitively, intellectually. It's beyond knowing, actually. So I asked Manindra, is someone like me able to do that? You know, I was in my 20s then, and of course, um, you know, I had this thought that my life was way, there was so much ahead of me. And like uh, somebody said yesterday, maybe it was Pat, that now it's like I'm looking in the rearview mirror all the time and saying most of my life is behind me. And so at that time when I was in my 20s, I thought I'm going to make good use of my life. Because all of my teachers always told me that don't waste your time. Use your time wisely because you never know when death will tap you on the shoulder or difficult experiences in life will come and won't allow you to practice in the way where conditions are good all the time or even most of the time. So when I asked him that question, he, without hesitation, answered, yes, of course, someone like you definitely possible to reach that place of the unconditioned 
to understand how it is to live with life through all its ups and downs. So he told me of lay people that he had given guidance to um, in his town where he lived. And also um, he told me specifically about Deepama, one of his students who was also his relative. And he would proudly say, the many times I heard him tell the story, that uh, Deepama, he taught Deepama how to live in harmony, you know, through dana, through giving, through harmonious living. He taught her concentration, um, forms of concentration that are so far beyond my understanding of how could anybody ever do that. And she did. And also, um, she understood deeply how to purify the mind and the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion. So Manindra would proudly say about Deepama that she even surpassed him in his uh, understanding and his um, his own experiential uh, understanding of the Dhamma. So she lived a life of the Dhamma, and she made those practices and trainings that are all practices really of letting go, of purification, letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. She lived them in her life. She was a householder like uh, all of us here in this room. She was a mother, and she had gone through a lot of loss and pain in her life. She had health issues where she could hardly get to the hall, and she couldn't get to the hall to hear one of our grandfather teachers, Mahasi Sayadaw, give his Dhamma talk in the evening by walking. So one day I heard that she even crawled to the hall to hear the Dhamma. So that kind of puts me to shame <laughs> sometimes. I haven't been able to do that. And, <clears throat> and so sometimes we can't. And so that's the thing to do is to find our balance, of course. So I want to begin with the first pillar of the Dhamma, the practice of giving. So it comes from a clear intention in the heart to be generous, and it's acting on it. So when we give, we give from that place that we know that it contributes, it contributes to the well-being of another. So this, this could be a whole Dhamma talk in itself, but I'm just giving the high points here of this uh, pillar of the Dhamma. Manindra would say that if you didn't practice all of these pillars, then you know you're, the resting on this kind of foundation would be a little bit wobbly, a little bit weak. So it's really important to pay attention to all of these pillars and how we can practice them in our lives. So when we give, it's, it's a giving that's not expecting anything in return. It's like what we do in metta practice when we give our friendship, when we give a wish for well-being, but it's not with attachment that we get even a thank you or even an acknowledgement or even that that wish come true. Where It's given as a blessing. You know, may you be at peace. May your heart be filled with loving kindness and all those beautiful wishes that we offer. They're blessings that we're not expecting we don't even have an attachment that they have a result. It's just uh, um, a symbol of our goodwill. 
those words are symbols of our goodwill that we're giving. So it's very sensitive, you know, when we're giving like this. And in that sensitivity that we have when we're connected to one another by the giving of our goodwill, the giving of, uh, in, in dana, the giving of our generosity, there's a tremendous sense of inner and outer stability then. Metta is the generosity of the heart. So every time we did that in the afternoons, it was really developing this inner stability that we so need on the path. Because as you all know, every single one of you probably have experienced here in this time together um, difficult terrain to go through. And to have this kind of sense of community around us where we're giving and receiving our loving kindness to all, it gives us a sense of that um, connectedness, that interconnectedness that stabilizes us so much. So there's that deep realization that comes that my existence in life depends upon the kindness and generosity of so many others. You know, how we respect one another's practice, just giving that as an example. And in the same way, um, the existence and life of those around us depends on our kindness too, so that they can have a sense of well-being in their lives. So that interconnectedness is really, really important in our practice, and this is what happens when we practice generosity. Here in our practice together, it's a generosity of respect for one another, And the little ways that we give, you know, just giving way for people to be themselves and not be interrupted by our notes or, you know, the ways that we we want to make ourselves known to others. So we give um, a sense of seclusion to others, that kind of respect. And through that, we come to understand how that contributes to our own well-being, to our own happiness. Manindra once asked me when I was helping him through something difficult, a health situation, he said, you're giving because you're a good person, you're giving to me. And do you know how that's helping you? And I said, no, I never thought about it that way. And he said, what, how it helps you when you give is you're learning for yourself that sense of compassion that you have in your heart. And uh, you know that. You can feel that. You sense that if you're sensitive. And you're also, what you're learning is the giving and cultivation of loving kindness from your heart. You're also knowing the joy that comes when you give to another. It brings them joy because there's some kind of ease for them. Or maybe they're happy because you were generous, you shared their life with them. And so you get joyful too. So there's lots of beauty that comes with generosity. Also wisdom. We give when we give. There's some wisdom there. In fact, when Manindra asked me that question, he said, you can give with wisdom or without wisdom. What's your choice? So I said, well, sure, I want to give with wisdom. I'm not that, you know, stupid. <laughs> so 
I didn't say that to him, but... Um, so it is with wisdom when we understand that we gain ourselves. We gain a, a sense of goodness in ourselves, which is so important to, in terms of stability on the path. So this greatly opens the way uh, to deeper moments of letting go because when we give, we're, we're really just letting go, not just of some material resource that we have, but we're letting go of um, obsessions, you know, we, of the obsessions of maybe holding on. And it's not just holding on to material resources, but it's just holding on to being right, you know, the attachment to being right. Or maybe we have an attachment to not being good enough, you know, attachment of a sense of self that isn't not good enough, that is not good enough. Or we maybe we are learning through giving how not only to let go there, but it transfers over to letting go of trying too hard, of striving in a way that isn't serving to us in any way, in our work life, in our ways of being with our family, trying too hard in a ways of being with our practice. We're letting go of deep patterns that cause a lot of pain to ourselves. So we're getting used to seeing those patterns. And when we let go in ways of life where we're generous, all that letting go transfers into deep ways of letting go in our lives. So we're letting go also of a view of life that isn't in line with how reality is. You know, how we insist on permanence and we, we insist on, um, you know, not having pain <laughs> when it's part of life. We insist on things sometimes of being more beautiful than it is. Um, and so we learn how to accept things more. We learn to let go of things like that. So the Buddha said that it is the beginning practice for those who wish to diminish the forces of suffering. So giving can mean our time, giving of our time, listening with an open heart, metta, uh, and the generosity of heart, giving respect, energy, a sense of ease. When we practice the, par- the um, precepts, which I'll talk about in a moment, it's giving a sense of safety to others. So that also is generosity. So that's the first pillar of the Dhamma, uh, the pillar of dana or the practice of giving. And now there's a second pillar, which is sila, living in harmony with our highest values and with others. So this is by the careful attention of our speech and behavior. So we've talked about the precepts and how these all these five precepts that we take when we practice are really having to do with speech and behavior, having our speech be loving and kind and timely uh, and um, many more facets than that, but also having our behavior being gentle, being non-harming, being beneficial. And so at the same time that we're 
uh, having respect not to hurt or harm others through our speech, through our behavior. At the same time, we're having respect for ourselves because we're learning to live in alignment with, with our really our deepest values. But we get carried away sometimes with the um, momentum of the habit patterns of our mind. So in the teachings, it's said that the proximate causes for careful attention this kind of very sensitive attention to arise is called the two guardians of the world. The two guardians of the world. And they are not outside of ourselves, but they're part of our hearts. They're part of us. And these are known, uh, there's two words, and I'll spell them. Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa, O-T-T-A-P-P-A. These are words in the ancient language of Pali, P-A-L-I. That ancient language was um, spoken and the the original teachings of the Buddha were written in that language. So many fine translators use these Pali words because the English translation of them is nowhere near um, describing what they really mean. So I'll, I'll tell you what they are in um, their translation in English directly. Hiri is translated as moral shame. Not very inspiring to want to understand, but it, it, it happens. And, and otapa is moral fear. And so I want to uh, fill out those for you. So this first one, this one that is translated into moral shame, is a wholesome shame or a shrinking away from doing harm or causing hurt to others. It's like shrinking away from something. It's not associated with self-aversion at all. It's a very wholesome feeling to know that something is coming up in the mind to do or to say or to even think. And then there is this thing called hiri, or that shame, that we kind of shy, shrink away from it. We don't want to do that, because we know that it's not only harmful for out there, but it's harmful for our own karmic stream to do that, to say that, to think that. So it's a very, very um, powerful feeling that we have when actually chanting or saying the precepts every day really helps this to come up in us, these two guardians of the world, where we're really uh, having it very sensitively in our life every day. So this first part, this what is called hiri, moral shame, is an intuitive sense that what you're thinking or saying or going to say or to do is intuitively hurtful. It's intuitively hurtful. It's rooted in self-respect. We, sh- we shrink away from wrongdoing. So it has an internal reference. It's really respecting ourselves sensitively, deeply. It comes out of respect for one's dignity, for one's integrity. And it has one really reflecting honestly, soberingly honestly, about how we are thinking, acting, and speaking in the world. 
So Seda Upandita wrote in his book, um, Upandita, one of my teachers, he said that this shame, this kind of shame, is a feeling of disgust towards the hindrances. As you try to be mindful, you find there are gaps during which the hindrances pounce on you and make you their victim. Returning to our senses, so to speak, we feel a kind of abhorrence or shame. It's a shrinking away for the hindrance, from the hindrances. And this is that attitude called hiri. It's when I see this happen, the mind getting caught and, or in wanting or aversion or even in delusion, it's like it wakes up the mind. It also wakes up the mind. It makes it more mindful. The first time I, I saw this actually in experience was when I was practicing in Burma um, some years ago. And there was this constant repetition of the storyline that kept coming to me. It was about someone else, uh, a friend of mine. And it was just really, um, you know, pummeling me <laughs> one moment after the, the next. And it was really kind of beating me down in a way. And so I wasn't ashamed to tell Sedao Upandita about this. So I told him what was going on. And he said, he, right away he said, oh, I said, I said, I felt when this is, was coming up, there was a waking up in me, like, this is not good. This is not good for my karmic stream. This is not good because I'm kind of feeding that thought over and over again about another person. It's very difficult to come to terms with this in oneself. And so he, he said, oh, he mentioned that word, oh, this is hearing. This is that inner guardian that is coming to you. It's to tell you, be careful, be careful, be careful. And so then when it would come up, it would come up a lot in my walking practice. And when it would come up, then I, it was a message to me, be really careful with this. So it woke me up to like, stop this. It was a good, a good way of saying it. It wasn't like a, a way of putting me down but it was a way of saying, this is not good for you. And so I really woke up to that. You know, ways of a kind of, um, I didn't know it, but that was what was beating me down. It wasn't that experience. It was my own thoughts around it over and over again. So rooted in self-respect, we shrink away from it. And we're careful not to plant those seeds um, anymore. You know, we can catch it more sometimes. So that intention came up to really be with it. And I really saw the power then of this, um, uh, these two guardians of the world and not being caught in them. Really, really important for, for my sense of self-respect to continue. <clears throat> So Bhikkhu Bodhi says that um, this, is, this is not only to help us, but it's also to help others, of course, uh, so that we're not really um, 
causing that harm in the world that then they react to it. So let me take a moment here to look at my notes for a minute. So, otapa means um, moral fear. And it's a fear that when we cause hurt or harm to others, we will be kind of put out of our community. That those people who love us and whom we respect will not respect us. So it's that kind of fear that people that we love will not have respect for what we did or what we said. So there are times that I've felt this when maybe I was about to say or do something and I would think about what would my teachers think of this, you know, if they knew? Or what would my loved ones think of this if they knew about this? You know, the, you know that I would, I would do things that were um, hurtful to others, for example. So... I had um, an experience of this with my granddaughter recently, and um, she she says it's okay to tell the story, by the way. (laughs) And she was doing something that her mother, my daughter, and myself were like, how can we stop her from this? You know, she was a teenager, and we, we really wanted to help her to see her way more clearly through what she was um, going through. And nothing worked, really. You know, she just, she just kept doing it. And um, it, some, there, there, it wasn't really bad. It was just things that teenagers do. So then her mom said to her one time, my daughter said, if you keep doing this, I'm going to tell your nana. And that's me. And that stopped her right away. <laughs> because she was afraid that I wouldn't, care about her anymore, that I would think she was a bad person, that I would kind of disown her or something. Of course, I'd never do that. But that was a real good example of that otapa, that fear of um, kind of being blamed or being, of being shamed or being cut out. On a grosser level, it could mean fear of, you know, being punished by the law, something like that. So, um, that kind of guardian inside is something that we really need to pay attention to also. A lot of um, times of kind of subtle uh, speech that I could have been more careful about, you know, I reflect upon and think, gee, what would Upandita think of me, you know, by saying that, if I said that in his presence? So this is the those inner guides that we have, those guardians that we have that really kind of wake us up in our life. <clears throat> so that's sila, the um, living in harmony with ourselves and with others. And the last pillar I want to go over is the one of called bhavana, B-H-A-V-A-N-A, a Pali word. And it's a cultivation of the spiritual powers. They're the cultivation of the mind and heart, 
of what we do in our meditative practice here, the powers of, of concentration. And we all have seen how powerful uh, concentration can be in our life, the concentration of metta, the concentration of one-pointed attention to one or few objects, limited objects. And so there's another part uh, of this meditative practice that we do that comprises bhavana, not only concentration, but also what concentration develops, helps to develop, is um, wisdom. And so this is what the far-reaching goal of the practice is, is to develop this liberating wisdom. And we can't do that unless we have, unless we, our minds and hearts can rest on some um, power of concentration to some degree. Otherwise, our minds are just chaotic. And you know how it is. We're, we've all been sitting with it together. So two parts of bhavana, the development of concentration and the development of wisdom. So we've dedicated this time here, this time of being together, to the power and the value and the practice of concentration. So there have been many beautiful talks and details given about that. So I'm not going to review that, uh, all of that with you, although more will be given in, in the next days connected to concentration and to wisdom. And we're, we've been developing that in a relaxed, non-striving way, more spacious, connecting and sustaining with whatever's going on in the body um, and uh, the breath in the body. And we're knowing experientially how to soften our attention, not to strive, but to soften our attention and make malleable our mind so that it can be with anything that comes up. The hindrances that we've experienced, um, difficult states of mind, so that we don't develop this kind of um, way that we strive so hard that we're actually causing harm to our practice. So the Buddha offered concentration practice as a way to tame the mind, to collect and seclude it from the hindrances. And at times during our practice, we've experienced that, whether it's been here or in other practice times that we've had, where the energy uh, is feels that it can kind of go towards a single object over and over, or limited objects over and over again, like in metta, concentration practice. There's limited uh, experiences, but they're all around metta, the phrase that we use, the person that we use, and the, um, and the feeling that comes up, maybe a, a palpable experience that we have in our bodies, minds, that we have of metta. Or we put the attention towards the breath, it goes away, we bring it back to the breath. We may pay attention to other secondary objects, but mostly we're softening the attention, coming back to the breath over and over again. That's our practice. So in that way, when we're kind of directing the attention over and over and over again to limited or singular objects, it develops a force field. 
And because that force field is there, it develops a sense of seclusion around uh, the sense of self that we live in. And that sense of seclusion kind of keeps the, the uh, hindrances at bay. So we have moments, and some of you have expressed them clearly to me. Some of you um, have expressed them and don't even know that you're experiencing moments, but you are, of momentary seclusion or many moments of seclusion from the hindrances, where greed, hatred, and its many forms, and delusion and its many forms don't come into that force field. And some of you maybe are experiencing some of them, but not all of them. And, and it's important to understand and to realize which ones aren't coming in. That's why the instruction has been given to really understand the absence of what, hindrance, of what hindrances are not coming into the force field, what the absence of them are. So when we experience things like that, it develops this uh, mind that feels so collected, that's not dispersed, that doesn't feel dysregulated. And not all the time, but I have to say just sometimes momentarily. And there comes a deep inner sense of protection. There can come a deep inner sense of protection. Some of you know that experientially. There's seclusion from this kind of mind that is um, restless and sloth and torpor. Um, The mind is alive and awake. And we feel a sense of like not only seclusion from the hindrances, but a sense of sometimes deep love, a love that we've never felt before, Um, an unconditional kind of caring for ourselves in the world. We feel a deep sense sometimes of compassion for the dukkha, for the suffering that there is. There's no doubt about what's happening at all because there's a clear connection with whatever's happening. So doubt has totally disappeared from the mind at times. So the mind at moments becomes temporarily purified when at times it can be that no hindrances come into that force field at all. And it's a very sublime experience, an otherworldly, almost actually, experience. The hindrances cannot penetrate that force field because of this constant direction that we're giving it uh, the energy of the mind all the time. The results are ever-deepening calm, tranquility, a very quiet kind of joy and bliss, an exalted kind of stillness that's beyond what we had known to be possible. And it shows us the potential of the mind. This is extremely important. That's why concentration was taught by the Buddha. Because it's a way that many people through training can really experience the potentiality of this being human, the potential of the mind to experience this deep stillness and actually from there even to go beyond it. But this concentration is a way to know that it's possible. 
it's possible to have that kind of deep clarity and that kind of deep care and love for ourselves and others and that deep kind of um, wisdom that is beginning to be developed so that we can live in this world and come back to that place when we need to. It's mentioned many times in the sutta where the Buddha went to that kind of deep place for a rest, and even beyond that place, to the unconditioned, for a rest for himself. Because he had problems just like we do, back pain and problems with his relatives trying to kill him and... (laughs) You know, I mean, you think we got problems. Read the teachings of the, read the suttas and you'll see all of that, you know. And so um, we need a place of rest. We need a place to feel our hearts and minds that are not dysregulated. So it's so important to take this practice seriously. And I'm really so happy that it's being given in this way, that, you know, human beings, householders like us, can actually practice this. We don't have to do anything, um, you know, so highly blissful that um, sometimes it feels impossible. But we can do this practice in this kind of way. And so it shows us a potentiality of freedom. Freedom from being bombarded by the hindrances in our lives. So this type of um, experience, this concentration is developed by these qualities, these factors that we've talked about here and there, this aiming, connecting, sustaining the attention over and over again to um, limited or singular experience objects like the breath, by um, which which produces a kind of joyful interest in what's going on. So that kind of uh, delight and kind of uplifting keeps us going in the practice where there can be this sweetness, this kind of really soft sweetness that happens in our practice, even if it's momentary. And this one-pointed kind of seclusion that we feel, seclusion, secluded from all the hindrances. And it helps bring the mind to a place of not reacting to things. Because for one thing, there's not much to react to when the hindrances are at bay. So we feel a kind of equanimity, a kind of neutrality that we haven't felt before. It gives us a confidence and faith that this can be developed by us human beings. This kind of concentration was highly practiced and valued by the Buddha in his time and by disciples around him. So it is being offered to you in the kind of, in kind of precision and uh, a way that's an important step to open to the next step of our practice, which we all have practiced also, most of us, if not all of us, the practice of vipassana. And vipassana means seeing things in, as, as they are experiencing reality as it truly is without um, overlaying any concepts over them but just receiving life as it is and then living in alignment with that that um, developing understanding. So in Vipassana, 
I'll fill that out more um, actually later. In Vipassana, there is a level of concentration. And uh, that level of concentration can actually be almost the level of concentration, if not the same level of concentration that we develop in metta practice to a, a certain degree of jhanic attainment, or jhanic means um, a deep level of concentration, attainment. All of the uh, factors or the um, uh, concentration factors or jhanic factors get developed also in vipassana practice. They can be developed in vipassana practice where the the um, there's momentary concentration on changing objects, not on singular or limited uh, experience of limited objects like metta, but on changing objects. So what happens in that is that this um, energy of, of momentary concentration goes forth and it lands on the most predominant object of that moment. Of course, it's like a micro-moment that it only stays there, most of them, or actually all of them. And so it lands there, and it has just enough concentration to penetrate that experience deeply. It Penetrate means that it really sees or experiences that one momentary object um, and sees it beyond or before its conceptual understanding. It sees it in more of an elemental way. As um, Philip was describing the other morning about being with the element of, of earth, the earth element, or the firmness, the hardness, or even the softness of experience. Well, that, that goes for all the moments that one can experience experiences in the body as he was talking about or even experiences of the mind how one experiences them elementally beyond or before concepts that we put on them the concept of earth element is not there it's just like feeling the hardness the softness the fire element is the element of um, heat the absence of or the absence of heat the air element is on the experience of vibration or tingling or some of the other things that were, were talked about here. Shaking of the body, um, movement of any kind. And the water element is representative of um, a feeling of kind of connecting, connectivity. It's, um, you know, when you see uh, some water spill and you watch it, and things come together. So it, it connects things in, in our experience. It's also um, a feeling of heaviness sometimes. So the body and mi- the mind is experiencing all these things and, and on, mo- on momentary levels, and it's not making a story out of anything. It's just moment to moment to moment to moment experience. And so what is um, happening in those moments is the continuity of awareness on changing objects. 
So this continuity of awareness doesn't mean that it is the same awareness on changing objects. So on, an object arises and awareness arises with it and they both pass away. And then the next object arises and the uh, awareness arises with it and they both pass away. It's a continuity of awareness, but the objects are changing. So really have to emphasize that even awareness is also changing. So it's not ever the same awareness. It's not awareness in the background or some kind of um, always there awareness. It's a continuity of awareness that um, causes the mind to feel very stabilized, very, very clear about what's going on. And so what the mind sees is uh, very deeply into the, um, the nature of that experience. It's not making a self out of anything. It's not making a story out of anything. It just sees um, momentary experience one by one by one at a very deep level. And so there are numerous objects that arise um, and they all have to do with the five sense doors and the mind. And the mind has more than I can talk about (laughs) in one Dharma talk or even, you know, ten Dharma talks. Um, It includes all the, just to put them in the five aggregates, aggregates, it includes all the feeling tones of the mind, what we call Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, trying to be inclusive, and also um, uh, perceptions, sanya, S-A-N-N-A, and also intentions, and also consciousness, or knowing itself. So the mind, um, mindfulness, or awareness, knows all of those objects momentarily, one moment at a time. And it's going by so fast that the perception into the changing objects um, isn't any more blissful. It's a very chaotic feeling, and this is when people want to go home. You know, they've been experiencing kind of this inner stillness and bliss, but now seeing many things arise and pass away, many things arise and pass away, and um, the the understandings here are uh, helping the mind come into a sense of deeper wisdom about how reality really is. So it's no longer blissful and calm, but in fact very chaotic and painful. And we think something's wrong with our practice. But actually this is a time when the, you need a good teacher a teacher who knows, who has experiences, so the teacher can say, this will pass. You just have to continue and keep your continuity of awareness on changing objects. So the continuity, even here, the continuity, that sense of concentration on uh, changing objects really helps us to have a sense of stability, even though things are chaotic. 
So a lot of important, extremely important shifts take place in one's view of what's happening at this time. One opens to the universal characteristic of that things are ceaselessly um, changing. Can't stop it. Um, Can't hold on to anything. And so this is kind of um, a view that experientially hasn't been seen before. And so it could actually frighten the mind a little bit. Again, you need a good teacher here to keep one going through it. And so because of that, we understand, because of that deep view of impermanence, there's a new understanding that comes that can't hold on to anything. Nothing stays the same. Even beautiful moments change. So this understanding of dukkha uh, or the unsatisfactory nature of life, meaning that there isn't anything in this life by itself or in combination with anything else that will give us complete and lasting happiness. Of course, we have many moments, beautiful moments of happiness, but it can't be lasting. So that reality comes into view. And somehow our alignment with life starts to shift. We stop holding on so much. We don't have uh, um, that sense of like, we've got to hold on to anything so tightly because we know how painful it is. And so the last of these universal characteristics is that the mind begins to see the ephemerality of everything, the insolidity of how things come and go. And it starts to make connections into like, well, you know, even this body, you know, feeling comes and it goes. Um, Hardness comes and it goes. Heat comes and it goes. And what makes up what we call body is doing the same thing. That deep view is also seen. And so what about the mind? You know, things that we so... um, make solid. It's interesting how a thought is so ephemeral, but it's so powerfully solid to us. Make up a sense of self around it all the time. So this sense of self um, we see as existing as a combination of so many things coming together and falling apart. So that's what happens there in that those moments. And so the process of seeing life anew begins to happen and we begin to live in alignment with that. Some of you, if not all of you, have had these experiences already and you're not putting it into some cognitive, you know, you can talk about it framework, but you've got it inside your heart already. You know it already through experience. And it's what makes us hang on less to things. So eventually we get to the place of, uh, by seeing this over and over and over again, this coming and going of these moments of reality and the continuity of awareness, that kind of um, concentration that's put on it, that continuity of awareness over and over again, sees through the illusion of solidity, sees through the illusion of self, sees through the illusion of permanence and begins to see life in a different way. And this is what 
the far-reaching goal of the Buddha's teaching is all about. It comes to the point where the mind can be so um, used to it that there is this, what is called the six-limbed equanimity, where whatever appears at the six doors, the five doors of, of the body and, and the door of the mind, there is no reactivity to it at all. It just can come and go, whatever can come and go. And the mind feels so secluded in a different way. It can open to all of that, but um, it, it doesn't have to feel so you know, protective of it. It's very, very, the mind is very, very at ease with whatever's happening. And so it says it's this kind of equanimity that has been working with the deepening understanding of seeing uh, anicca or the impermanent quality of everything, the impersonal quality of everything, and the unsatisfactory nature of everything over and over and over again. And so it, that deep non-reactivity is there. There's a spacious, very still calmness in the mind. And it's said that when one experiences this, you understand what it is to be in the mind of an arahant, a fully enlightened being. So it's from this place that it's said that the mind leaps into the unconditioned. It can't do anything else. There's no other place for this energy to go. And so it's beyond all knowing, beyond all conditioned experience. So there's no way to describe this place because words um, are in the conditioned realm and can't, could never describe this experience. So the mind begins to be very purified um, uh, in having a different view of life, purified of an uprooting greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is a, the goal of the Buddhist teaching to go beyond to go beyond these conditioned experiences. And um, I'd like to put it all together with this poem that Upandita wrote, the very first retreat I took with him in 1985. And so somebody translated it into a rhyming kind of thing. So, um, But here's the essence. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, Birth only in states of clarity. Great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity. For others, a sense, a care, and sensitivity. Birth only in states of contentment. A heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility. Soft rapture from a life of simplicity. Birth only in states of calm peace mental turbulence and distraction all cease. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit, and craving no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, then adorned in the heart, your freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words dissolve. 